I, I want to ask you a question. Have, have you ever had a person say something to you once, but then you keep saying it to yourself over and over and over again? It, it's like they meant to cut you one time with the comment, but then you cut yourself a thousand more times by rehearsing it in your mind and saying it over and over and over again. This is a a struggle that I find is harder for those of us who are quieter people. Um, What I've come to realize is the conversation keeps going in their head. And, And this is something that that they tend to struggle with because a person who talks kind of gets it out and it's done and it's over with, but, but it's the quiet ones you have to watch because they're just rehearsing these things, these words that people say to them, sometimes careless words, sometimes intentionally harmful words. But what should have been a quick cut that was healed relatively quickly, instead turns into a gaping wound because we're rehearsing it over and over and over again in our mind. And, And the thing about this kind of attack is there's no defense for it. The the person has said what they're gonna say, and they're they're moved on with their life. They half the time they don't even remember what they said. But you do. And, and how do you even defend against such an attack? Well, I think David is going to give us some help this morning in these two Psalms that the people that put together the, the hymnal for us organized it intentionally, as we're going to see, and, and put these two Psalms together, which is why I wanted to cover both of them this morning. We have to be careful with what we say and the words that we use. James 3, 6 reminds us that the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, James says, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of that same God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. I think we're going to see in Psalm 65 this morning, or excuse me, 64, David crying out to God. We see in verse 1, Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. That, that word complaint is a legal term. God is, David is coming before God as if coming before a judge in, in a courtroom type setting. And it's not a complaint as in I'm complaining. It's here is my formal petition. Here is my case that I'm making to you, God. Hear me. Listen to me. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. Now, I just want to stop there for a second and I want to think about something. David is a seasoned 
warrior. Right? I mean, ever since the guy was a kid, he's been taking apart the wildlife, cutting heads off of giants. When everybody else is trembling and afraid, David's like, give me some stones and a sling and I'll take care of this guy. I don't care how big he is. Right? This is, this is a brave man, a brave warrior. Him and his mighty men slew thousands upon thousands of people. And yet we find him calling out to God, preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. What, what enemy could possibly put David into such a state that, that he is in dread and, and fear and, and calling out to God like this? What could make a seasoned warrior so afraid? He goes on in verse 2, hide me from the secret plots of the wicked from the throng of evildoers who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. They hold fast to their evil purpose and they talk of lying snares secretly thinking, who can see them? They search out injustice saying, we have accomplished a diligent search from the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. David lays out what this enemy looks like. And he lays out the attack of the enemy here. We see it starting in verse 2. The, the nature of the attack is a conspiracy. Right? Secret plots. We, we, we want to start twisting things just a little bit let, let, let's take what's being said let's let's take what we have and let's just twist it just enough right the good a good conspiracy theory has a little bit of truth to it we we have to remember that this morning we live in a time filled with conspiracy theories. If we're not careful, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but conspiracy theories are going to pull this country to ruin. And for every good conspiracy, there has to be a little bit of truth. Just, just enough to make you go, well, maybe. So that's the nature of the attack. Christians, be careful of conspiracies. The second, the weapons of the attack we see in verse 3. Words. Just words. Harmless words. Right? Think, th think about those harmless words that got us into this mess. Did God really say? Four simple words. That's all Satan needs. That's all the enemy needs is a few words to pull us down. That, that's the weapons of the attack. Verse 4 shows us the method of the attack. And that's stealth. Right? We're, we're, we're shooting at them. We're coming at from an ambush. We're, we're, we're hiding from them. We're like snipers just sitting up here and, and sniping people down. Here's what that looks like in, in real life. 
It means you go up and you talk to someone and you say, hey, have, have you ever thought about this? And then you back up. And you let that person go radioactive. Right? You're, you're over here in the bushes. Nobody sees you. All they see is this radioactive conspiracy nut running around telling everybody all these things. And while people may not believe everything he says, they believe just enough to make them to start to doubt. All the while, you're hiding up in the bushes. Nobody you think is the wiser for what you've done. I find it interesting in this psalm that David chooses not to defend himself. Why? I would argue the reason why David doesn't defend himself in this psalm is because you can't win a battle of words. You can't do it. When people come to you and say, hey, this is my view and this is what I think happened and this is what I think you did. How, how do you defend against that? You can say, well, no, that's not what I meant or no, that's not what I said. Sure, you're just passing the buck. I knew you wouldn't take responsibility because my remembrance and my vision is 100% crystal clear. Do not doubt me. You ever, you ever been in that situation? You ever had to deal with that? There's nothing you can say. In fact, the more you say, typically the worse it will get. And so David is wise here by reminding us not to engage in these kinds of attacks. Instead, we should do what David does in verses 7 through 9. But God shoots his arrows at them. Not David shoots his arrows. God shoots his arrows at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. Then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. Folks, this is one of the hardest things to do as a Christian. When people are accusing you when people are saying things that that are not true everything inside of us wants to defend ourselves but we need to let the lord shoot the arrows not us because remember what james said about our tongue <laughs> The same one that blesses God then also curses the people made in the image of God. None of you remember perfectly, correctly. Your memory, newsflash, was also affected by the fall. I love those little Geico commercials they have right now with the married couples and the instant replay. And I think, whew. Sometimes that'd be great, but then I think sometimes that might not be great. 
right? Because our memories were affected by the fall. Our perception of events was affected by the fall. Do not assume you have perfect recall and perfect interpretation of events. That, that's a recipe for going in pridefully, which is what these people are doing. Right? They, they are blind to one important fact. Because of, their, because of their pride, because they think they know everything and they understand everything perfectly, that, that they can attack these people. The one thing that blinded them that they were blind to, is that God sees everything. Everything. Verse 6 says, They search out injustice, saying, We have accomplished a diligent search for the inward man, mind and heart of a man are deep. See, these people feel justified. They feel justified that they have assessed the situation, that they understand the situation perfectly. They've documented every little injustice to justify the attack back to the people. Their character is pride. But David concludes this psalm again by pointing us, as he's done so many times, back to Jesus in verse 10. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in Him. Let all the upright in heart exult. The righteous one David is referring here to is is the one who rejoices in the Lord and takes refuge in Him. That's Jesus. That's not David. I mean, read about David's life. David David was a man after God's own heart, but, but he didn't perfectly do this. He was not the righteous one, but Jesus did. David is again helping us this morning, and I, and I hope you get this this morning, that, that David says when you find yourself in this situation where you're being attacked and people are using words and conspiracies and all these different things, stop looking down at your circumstances and start looking up at Jesus. Look up at the righteous one. The one who sees everything perfectly. You also are fallen. Your perception is also affected by sin. So don't look down at your circumstances. Look up to Jesus, the righteous one. David ends this psalm by by telling all of the upright in heart to exalt God. When we stop looking down at our circumstances, down at the relationships, down at the situations, and start looking up to Him, David said that that naturally is going to lead to praise. It's it's going to lead to us exalting the King, the the righteous one. David continues this theme of exaltation and praise carried right into the next psalm, Psalm 65. It's interesting, in Luke's gospel, he records an event where where Christ encountered a group of ten men suffering from leprosy. You can read about it in 
Luke 17, 12 through 19 this week. And these these men meet Jesus and, and as he enters into the village, these hopelessly afflicted men, they, they come to Jesus and they're just crying out to Jesus, help us, Jesus, help us. And filled with compassion, the Lord graciously healed them. But Luke then gives us a very interesting detail about these ten men. Out of the ten men, the ten lepers that Jesus healed, only one stopped and glorified God. Only one stopped and expressed his gratitude to Jesus. The other nine ran out without stopping to praise or thank the Lord for so powerfully changing their lives. I think sadly, far too often we are like those nine ungrateful lepers. We beg God for help, and when He helps us, we fail to properly glorify and thank Him for what He's done to us. Psalm 65 through 68 teach us to balance our petitions with praise. In the four previous Psalms, David is desperately crying out to God at a critical time in his life, most likely during Absalom's revolt against him. And the arranger of the, of the Hebrew hymnal strategically placed four psalms of thanksgiving and praise immediately after these four psalms of intense pleas, showing us how to express our gratitude to God for his goodness. Even in the way the book is laid out, God is trying to teach us something. It was meant that the psalms of pleading and longing should be followed by hymns of praise. In his teaching, Jesus emphasized the importance of praising God in our prayers. And Psalm 65 is a, is a hymn of thanksgiving praise. Praising God for both spiritual and physical blessings. Most commentators believe that it was written for one of the Jewish harvest festivals, either the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Feast of the Tabernacles. And, and during this time, there would be a, a performance of vows according to what's written there in Leviticus 23. Uh, there was an answer to prayers. And, and there was a, a mention here of, of kind of a national turmoil in verse 7. And that kind of suggests it was written after God delivered David and Israel from some kind of threatening crisis. Again, we don't have the exact detail no superscription here to help us and just like israel we we are blessed by god today because he listens to our prayers he forgives our sin he he welcomes us into his presence this morning he provides for us daily through his amazing creation as grateful followers of god we should Praise Him by offering our sacrifices of gratitude. Just as the nation of Israel did. When you have a, a, a deep sense of gratitude of God's goodness. 
it just naturally leads to praise. We, we oftentimes teach things the wrong way in church. We, we try to teach people how to praise God instead of teaching them how to be grateful. See, David is going to show us how we should help people understand how to praise God. And he does that not by telling us, praise God more, praise God this way. Instead, he says, I want you to see what God has done for you. So that of a grateful heart, you become a cheerful giver. The second Psalm 65 is kind of broken down into two parts, verses 1 through 4 and 5 through 13. And the first part here is, is praising God and honoring your commitments to Him in verses 1 through 4. David proclaimed to God that praise was waiting for him in Zion. That the people were gathering in Jerusalem to celebrate the goodness of the Lord and to fulfill their commitments to Him. The, the vows and the commitments that would be carried out or fulfilled were, were offerings, promised to God in appreciation for His blessing and help. During the Feast of Tabernacles, many commitments were fulfilled as an expression of gratitude to God for a bountiful harvest. Because he answers prayer, he's available to all who will come to him, as we see in verse 2. The people praise God for being the one who hears their prayers. This is in contrast to the idols that were worshipped by the pagan nations around Israel, which, which were lifeless and could never respond to their prayers. And the Hebrew word here, used for hear is Shema, and it goes beyond just listening. It also means to respond and heed a request. The people come together to fulfill their promises to God. Why? Because He answered their prayers. To you shall all flesh come conveys a, a, a great prophetic truth here that God is not available exclusively to the Jewish nation, but to all who come near to Him. As we see in Acts chapter 10.35 and Romans 10.12. The statement is significantly prophetic. It, it, it points to the Gentiles coming to God for salvation. It points to the church being planted and grown and, and integrated into the vine. Of Israel. It's prophetic of the coming kingdom of Christ. It's, it's prophetic of when people of all the earth will worship the Lord. David is trying to get us again to look up and to look out. He goes on in verse 3 because he redeemed and forgives our sins. This is another reason why he is praiseworthy. Israel prayed to God for many things, but what they specifically asked for in this instance was forgiveness. Atonement or forgiveness of our sins is the, the greatest of God's abundant blessings to us. 
God's immeasurable love for us was demonstrated through the sacrifice of His Son for our sins. Through Jesus Christ's substitutionary death, God redeems us and forgives us, Ephesians 1-7 tells us. The, the, the verb he's using there to purge them away is the, the, the Hebrew word for atone, to, to make atonement. It's, it's a, a covering, a, a taking away of sin through an offering of an acceptable sacrifice to God. Psalm 65 is indeed a hymn for the Feast of Tabernacles. The Jews would have sung it immediately after the Day of Atonement. Accordingly, gratitude for God's covering of their sins would be fresh in their hearts. It's interesting that the Hebrew word used here is is an imperfect verb, meaning that it, it speaks to an incomplete action. That the atonement of sin would remain incomplete until Jesus Christ offered himself as a once and for all. You see, the Day of Atonement came year after year after year, and that sacrifice had to be made year after year after year. But there's a hint here in the use of this imperfect verb that that there is coming a time when it will be made complete. And Jesus Christ is the one that offered that once and for all sacrifice for the transgressions of each and every one of us this morning. We can only grasp the true greatness of God's atonement when we fully understand the depths of our sin. That that, that atonement isn't praiseworthy if we think we're pretty good people. God isn't very praiseworthy if we think, hey, God's getting a bargain with me. It's only when we understand the depths of our sins that we begin to have the gratitude necessary to then properly praise God. The statement, when iniquities prevail against me, means that we have been completely overcome by our sins and by their consequences in our lives. It expresses that we are powerless and and hopeless and can only be saved through His grace. We only grasp the true greatness of God's atonement when we fully understand the depth of our sinfulness. Oh, but verse 4. He chooses to bless us. God's boundless love and grace prompts him to bless those whose sin he has forgiven. It's a wonderful privilege to be in his presence every day. David reminds us of how incredibly fortunate we are to be allowed to approach and to be near to God. According to the old covenant, God chose Israel as the people whom he would bring near to him. However, under God's new covenant of grace, we, both Gentiles and Jews, who have put our trust in Christ, have been chosen to receive this same privilege. In Old Testament times, only the Hebrews were allowed to dwell in God's courts. 
the, the tabernacle and later the temple where God's presence abided. We, however, are far more greatly blessed. God has chosen not to dwell within these four walls. God has chosen to dwell within us this morning through his Holy Spirit. We are God's house. Therefore, we spend every moment in God's presence, not just Sunday mornings, not just service times, whatever that may be. We spend every moment in God's presence. Do you, do you really grasp that? Do you really, are, are you really aware of that this morning? Just how blessed we are to be in God's presence. Every moment of every day. When our life is over, we will instantly be transported into God's heavenly home. After the completion of God's plan for this earth, He he will make His dwelling place with us in the new heaven and the new earth. God's From God's presence, His house, His temple, all good things flow this morning. He satisfies every longing of our soul, filling us so completely that we no longer thirst for the things of this world. In His infinite goodness, we, He meets every need of our hearts this morning. Nothing in this world can compare to the joy of being in God's presence. This is a poor analogy, but it was something I was thinking about when I was thinking about being in God's house. And, and some of you who are parents may get this. But there reached a point in our life as a family where when we traveled, it was no longer fun to stay in a hotel with the four of us. You know what I mean? Like, like you're in a 12 by 15 room with four people. And it just gets a little too tight. Right? And, and, and so, thankfully, God in His providence put on the heart of somebody to create something called Airbnb and we shifted to houses for the same price as the hotel normally. But we had a whole house. Right? We, we could go into that house and, and get rest. <laughs> Where that hotel room was never rest. Four people in the same room trying to sleep just never happened. But, but we could find rest in those houses that we rented for a time. And, and David here is telling us that God is inviting us in to his house. Not, not just a little box where we wait and, 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 you know, it's okay and yeah, there's a bed. But no, come into my house. Let me show you hospitality. That, that's what God wants for us this morning. To be in his house with his people, enjoying him forever. The second part of this psalm we see in verses 5 through 13 
And here the, the encouragement of David is to confess that God is our Savior. And he, He's the hope of every person on earth. Once again, David has emphasized the, the glorious truth that God is not exclusively Israel's God. He wants people everywhere to come to Him as His Savior. And he's confident that Jesus is the hope of every person on earth. And that God reaches out to all people with His goodness. And He answers our prayers as we see in verse 5 by performing amazing acts, David says. Now, throughout Israel's history, if you've read through the Old Testament, God has supernaturally answered people's prayers in ways they could have never imagined, right? You see God showing up in all these ways that, that none of them even knew to ask for, but yet God did. Awesome deeds are, 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 are works that cause us to just stand in awe of God. To revere Him and to to serve Him because of His mighty power. It's more than just mere coincidence and, oh, I guess that could have been God or that could have been happen chance, right? No, God, God shows Himself in some pretty crystal clear, miraculous ways. The miracles performed in delivering the Hebrews from Egyptian bondage, for instance, stand as the, the leading example of God's wonder-working power on behalf of His chosen people. David previously stated that this same power is available to all who will come to God and call upon him in verse 2. But not only does he answer our prayers with amazing acts, he's also omnipotent and all-powerful creator. We see that in verse 6. Nowhere is God's power demonstrated more clearly than His magnificent creation. To those dwelling in Jerusalem, the mountains surrounding the city were the most obvious examples of an omnipotent or all-powerful creator. It's, it's something to see, to, to be in Jerusalem and just to see these mountains surrounding you. And, and for them, they're looking up and they're seeing God's power. So when David uses these words, he's, he's being intentional because all of those people had an opportunity to walk outside and just look up in every direction and see God's handiwork. The mountains are set fast or firmly established. Neither the strongest winds nor the most violent earthquakes can move them. They're held in place, David says, by God's hand. His strength. His power. David goes on to demonstrate his power. In addition to the, magnet, the majestic mountains so firmly anchored to the earth, the omnipotent God has demonstrated his power in a host of other ways. David mentions three in this passage. First, God has shown his power by ruling over the seas and the nations. The raging seas are under God's control, His command. The roaring waters are a symbol of, of people and, and, and chaos, right? The, the ancient world would look at the sea and go, it's, it's unpredictable, it's out of control, it's chaotic. 
David's like, not to God. Not to our God. Maybe to your gods who don't hear your prayers. But not to our gods. Again, I think David here is also speaking prophetically of the coming kingdom of Christ. Wars and conflicts never seem to cease, but when Jesus returns, he will calm the storms and strife of the nations. Just as he quieted the angry waves of Galilee. In Mark chapter 4. Under his righteous rule, peace will reign on earth at last. Second, God displays his power through his many wonders that, that stir people universally to fear and stand in awe of him. In verse 8, nature is filled with amazing marvels that just serve as, as just little mementos, little reminders and, and signs of God's incredible power. Only a fool looks upon this amazing world and fails to recognize the hand of a wise all-powerful, artistic creator. Everywhere the sun rises in the morning and sets in the evening, the, the glories of creation inspire people to rejoice in God and worship Him. Third, God has demonstrated His power by establishing the laws of nature to, to nourish the land and to care for each one of us. We see this is in verses 9 through 13. In conjunction with the harvest festival. David eloquently described. How God in his infinite wisdom. Designed the earth to supply. Life's necessities. God lovingly provides. All these things. Verse 9. Waters to enrich the earth. And to fill the streams. Thereby assuring the provision of food for his people. The, the verse, the, the word that he uses there in the Hebrew means to attend to or to provide oversight to. Again, just showing God's active nature in his creation. God, God did not simply create and walk away. No, God is actively involved. The river of God most likely refers to the rains which fall from the heavens. And then rain to drench and soften the earth for plowing, thereby preparing the way to bless the crops. In verse 10, you water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges. And then verse 11, a bountiful, overflowing harvest. God's gift of an abundant harvest was the, the crown or the high point of the year. I love that saying, your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. This describes a farmer's cart so filled from the harvest that it's spilling over onto the path while it's being transported back to the barns. He's not just filling your wagon, folks. There, there's so much in your wagon that it's, it's spilling over onto the streets as you make your way back to the store barns, storage barns. In verse 12, lush green land and hills for wildlife. God had so blessed the land that even the, the wilderness or, or, or desert, the uncultivated area was green with sufficient growth to provide pastures or habitations 
for the creatures who lived in the wild. Rich pasture lands, verse 13, and grain for livestock. Pastures here are, are meadows where livestock grazed and are fattened. Nature itself seemed to praise God for his goodness, shouting for joy and singing. This is one of the things that, that amazed me about Israel because in my mind, I always had this picture of just a desert. Brown, shades of brown. And yet I go there and I'm just amazed by the green. I'm amazed by the, the rows and rows and rows of banana trees growing bananas. Just, just the, the, the sheer bountifulness of this area. It, 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 it's often described as the breadbasket of Europe because so much of the fruit is produced there. In, in a place that is literally surrounded by deserts. My, my idea of a brown landscape that's barren and rocky... All you have to do is go in any direction and that's what you get. And yet, here, you see something different. Psalm 65 serves first as a thanksgiving psalm. And I think it's appropriate, as Paul taught, we should give thanks to God at all times for all things. However, many of us, many nations, dedicate special days each year to giving thanks to God. We are coming up on one of those days in our culture. We celebrate Thanksgiving in November, right? Typically after the harvest season. I know most, maybe Sarah understands the harvest season, but most people don't understand the harvest season anymore because harvest season is whenever you leave Publix. But, but it was a time of thanking God for all that he had provided and we still, as a matter of tradition, often gather with our family and our friends to give thanks. Moms, dads, grandparents, listen, remember this and read this psalm as you sit down this Thanksgiving day. We should always remember God's goodness in providing for our salvation as well as every other need in life. This psalm isn't just spiritual. It, this psalm just isn't about spiritual fruit falling out of our basket. When we're following Him, when we're honoring Him, when we're doing our, our acts of service to Him out of a grateful heart because of what He has done for us, He promises to bless us and to provide for us. And that looks different for every single one of us. But God cares not only spiritually, for us ultimately, but also physically. Psalm 65 is also an evangelistic psalm. Especially this section of the passage in verses 5 through 13, it, it emphasizes God's goodness to all people, that He is mankind's only hope, and that Jesus Christ died for all of us. Scripture plainly states that God reveals himself, his, his existence and his power to every person on earth through his creation in Romans 1.20. As Psalm 65 teaches, God's creation also reveals his goodness to all people for he sends rain on the unjust as well as the just. Through his goodness, God seeks to draw 
people to himself this morning. Hopefully leading them to repentance and faith in Christ this morning. So let's look at three ways in closing that I think we can apply these two psalms in our lives. Number one, and this is from both Psalm 64 and 65, but put all your hope in King Jesus and no one else. Put all your hope in King Jesus and no one else including yourself. Jesus is the only one that's going to make the world new. The world is not going to be made new by anyone, by any political party, by any country. Someone could step in right now and bring peace to Israel and, and get all of the bombing and all of the fighting to, to just instantly stop, free all the hostages, bring about peace in that situation. But I guarantee you this, it will be a temporary peace. A temporary peace. Because the only person that can bring an eternal peace is Jesus. The only person that we should put our faith in this morning is Jesus. Jesus should be the only political leader we put our ultimate hope in. Jesus is the only one that's going to bring about racial reconciliation in our world. Jesus is the only one that's going to alleviate poverty in this world. Jesus is the only one who's going to fix everything that is broken. Forever, not just momentarily, temporarily, but forever. And listen, as you're going to see in one of my later points here, I'm not saying don't care about this world. I'm not saying disengage from it and run out to your, you know, 20 acres in your compound. We need to be people who remember, though, that this is not our kingdom, ultimately. Our king is going to make things right. And we need to be reminding the people that are around us that that's where our hope really lies. Doesn't mean that we don't work for good. We should. But we should work for that good, reminding people that ultimately we know the best we can do is something temporary. We need Jesus to fix things. Put all your hope in King Jesus and no one else. Number two, praise God because he answers our prayers. In Psalm 64, David is pleading for God to hear him. And then in verse 65, we see that God hears his prayers. Look at verse 2. Oh, you who hear, you who hear prayer. And then verse five, by awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness. It's important to listen to David's testimony this morning and believe that God answers prayers. Once you believe it, 
then you'll feel compelled to pray. And this psalm bears witness to this truth. So, so listen to them. Read these psalms to yourself and remind yourself and be strengthened by them that God hears our prayers and praise Him because of it. Finally, look at God's kindness and love in what He has made and how He cares for it. If you ever needed permission to enjoy creation, David is giving it to us here in Psalm 65. I know many of you like to go hiking and go out into the wilderness and go out on a boat and and just see the water, see the land, see the beauty. God God is giving us permission through David here in Psalm 65 to, to go out and look at all that God has created and how he sustains all of it. Our Christian faith encourages us to, us to look at creation, but then to praise the one who created it. So many people in our culture want to go out and look at creation and praise it. Close, but not quite right. We need to go out into creation and enjoy it and praise the one who made it and who carefully sustains it through His Son, Jesus Christ. As Christians, we're called to consider the lilies and the sparrows and the one who feeds them and cares for them. Remember, we worship a God who visits His creation. Where where is God's house? In us. God, God is living with us. Where? In creation. There's this idea, I think, out there that that sometimes it's like everything in creation is bad. And we should just avoid all of that. And that comes from a long line of Greek thinking that's not Christian. We worship a God who visits His creation. We also worship the God who's going to remake creation in ways that none of us can imagine. Let's pray.